0: Amen, and you may be seated. Well, you know, there are passages all the way through the Bible that are just immensely encouraging, isn't there? I mean, when you're having a difficult day or maybe a difficult week, maybe even a difficult life, and you find yourself really struggling, you find yourself really hurting, it's amazing how you can go to the Word of God, read the Scriptures, and how almost immediately it can begin to encourage and quicken your heart. You know, I stop and think about passages like Psalm 23. Everything seems to be falling apart. Psalm 23 lets you know that, guess what, there's somebody there shepherding and holding it all together for you. I stop and I think about passages like Romans 8, 28, which reminds us that even though it seems like things could not be worse than what they are, he says, hey, listen, I'm a good God, and guess what, all things work together for, to the, for, for the good, then I think of even passages like Hebrews 13, 5, when you're feeling like you're all alone, and Jesus comes and says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. What an incredible encouragement. No matter what kind of crazy, deep quagmire you find yourself in, there are just verses that seem to pick you up, encourage you, and to take you up out of that But on the other side, there are also passages that not only encourage our hearts, but actually disturb our hearts. Are are you guys with me? I don't know if you've ever read the Bible. I hope you have. But there is some kind of really disturbing things in this book. One of the most disturbing passages that doesn't settle my heart, but shakes my heart up at the very root is, is found in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. These are the words of Jesus Jesus says, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now that is deeply disturbing to me, right? I mean, do you understand what he's saying? What he's saying is this, is that there are going to be people on judgment day who walk through the earth, this earth completely and 100% confidently believing that they were children of God. They will stand before God on the day of judgment only to find out that the faith that they said had in Christ wasn't true faith. And he will cast them out into everlasting darkness. Guys, have you ever thought how disturbing that is? Immensely disturbing. It's disturbing for me as a believer, someone who professes to know Christ, it's disturbing for me as a dad who's trying to raise our children in the admonition of Christ and hoping and praying that they'll come and believe on Christ. It's certainly disturbing for me as a pastor who has been called to shepherd this flock, to shepherd this body, and yet what I realize is that there are some in the midst of all of those groups, even sitting here, that this might very well be the reality for. It's disturbing. But I think it's this very reality, this idea of false conversion is what was on the heart and mind of James when he wrote this very passage. See, he was concerned. He was concerned for his people. Remember, he's not with them. They've been dispersed because of persecution, and now he's hearing things back that just don't seem to jive. On one side, they're claiming to be believers in Jesus Christ, but what as he looks at their life, they're not living What a life unto Christ is supposed to look like, and he's concerned for their very salvation. So what he does is he writes this particular section right here before us, this particular text. And so what I'm going to do is we're going to, with that in mind, we're going to walk through this text just kind of as we normally do, verse by verse. And I'm going to give you kind of a simple outline. It's not really points, but just kind of a simple outline that's going to help us navigate through it. Hopefully that we'll be able to understand it a little bit better. But before we do, let me say this. Before I give you the first point, um, I always try to preach the text of Scripture with its appropriate mood. you understand what I mean? Another, it's, If it's light and it's joyful, guess what? I'm going to be up here going, light and joyful, right? This passage, no light and joyful. This passage is deep, it is serious, it is introspective, okay? So I'm going to try to handle the text and preach it the same way in which I think it's supposed to be taught, with grave seriousness. So let me give you the the first point, and here's what we're going to say. First, we want to see the claim. Now notice verse 14. We see the claim. In verse 14, James writes, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, James, is what he's doing is introducing an imaginary person. This is probably not an individual. Uh, He he probably doesn't have one specific individual in mind. Instead, he's probably thinking of many people that he has met over the course of his ministry that, that seem to fall into this category. They are people, they're the type of people who claim to know Jesus Christ, claim to follow him, claim to be a disciple of Christ, but yet they're not living that faith out on an everyday basis, and he's greatly concerned. Now, we know folks like this, yes? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how many people have you met, and you said, are you a Christian? They say yes, and you look at their, you look at their life, and you're like, man, these two things aren't matching up at all. But notice what we often do is when somebody tells us, yes, I'm a born-again believer, I know Jesus Christ is my Savior, we don't know know how to deal with that, but we just go, okay, well, I take your word for it. I'll just kind of walk the other way. Usually we don't even know what to say. Fortunately, James knows what to say. He knows how to tackle this individual. And so what he does is he confronts them with two questions. And, and these are rhetorical questions. And the way that they're written in, in, in the Greek really demands a negative response to both of those questions. What, what does he ask them? First question is this. He says, what good is it? In other words, he says, what value is there? Is there, is there any good? Is there, is there any profit, some translations say, if someone... Uh, says that he has faith. He claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but his life shows no evidence of following Christ. He says, is there any profit in that at all? Here's his answer, none. Second question, can that faith save him? Can that type of faith, which claims to be a believer, but doesn't show any evidence in their life, can that kind of faith save that individual? Here's his answer again, no. Now, I gotta tell you something. This is deep, this is, this is, Heavy and it 's also really the crux of the entire book. everything that's written on this book hinges on this particular truth verses fourteen through twenty seven Remember what the what, what what the desire of James is in writing this book. His burden in writing this book is to suggest this: whenever there is new birth, there is always new life that follows. in other words, what he says is to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you must also be radically changed in Christ. You cannot be saved without being changed. Do you got that? In other words, Christ didn't come just to get you out of hell. He came to get hell out of you. Does that make sense? So what the Bible teaches is he comes, and yes, he saves us from, his, from our sin, but what does he do? He radically changes us into new individuals, new true people unto him. You say, where do else do we see that? The clearest passage in scripture is probably in 2 Corinthians 5:17 when Paul writes if anyone is in Christ he is a what new creature old things have passed away and all things have become new. Now let me clarify very quickly not saying you become perfect even close to perfect but what I am saying is you're changed At the very root of who you are, the spirit that is within you, your nature, the old nature has passed away. You are now new and alive unto Christ. The whole trajectory of your life has changed, which means you live a radically different life. Now, let let me say a couple things. It's not just important to what James is saying in this book, this passage, but it's also been immensely controversial throughout church history. It has caused a lot of people a great deal of confusion and questioning and heartache this particular verse. And the reason for that, the problem stems from the fact that it appears, at least at first, that James is saying something completely different from the rest of the Word of God. It seems like he's contradicting the New Testament in its view of, uh, of soteriology, which is, which is how it teaches about salvation especially it seems like he is opposed to the apostle Paul. Remember what Paul says about about salvation. This is what he says it takes to be saved. He says, For we hold that one is justified, that is made right before God, by faith apart from works of the law. You guys got that, right? You're not saved by, by, by you doing good things unto God. You're saved by placing your faith in the good things that Jesus Christ accomplished on your behalf right? Placing your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. The Bible clearly states, no matter how hard you work, you can't work your way into a right standing with God, amen? So we know that's what it says. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says the same exact thing. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now notice, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Nobody is saved by their own doing and their own work, only saved by placing their faith in the work of Jesus Christ. If you agree, say amen. Now, here's the deal. James comes along, and James seems like he's saying something completely different. Is James disagreeing with Paul when it comes to the issue of salvation? Let me try to answer this as clearly, as uncomplicated as I possibly can. No. 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 He does not disagree with him at all. Then why does it seem like James is, it seems like James is saying, hey, look, yeah, you need to have grace, but man, you need a little works in there too, right? Why does it seem like these two people are contradicting each other? Well, let me try to explain that a little bit. Both of them, when they taught and when they wrote, both of them were confronting false teachings and heresies within the church. Paul was confronting what we would call works-based theology or works-based salvation. People that come and say, no, you just gotta be a good person and then you can ultimately be saved. Man, he is violently against that kind of teaching and heresy. James comes along, but things have changed things have changed in the fact that yes there are still some trying to work their way uh, to salvation but the church made a radical shift and they bypassed some of the truth and what they did was they went too far and they ended up in false doctrine again only southern baptists can do that right this is wrong okay well then let's let's over let's let's overdo this thing and just land into some other false doctrine in theology over here And so that's exactly what he does. Over here, man, you're you're saved by grace through faith alone. Okay, let's get back to the middle. We're not not saved by what we do, so let's be right in the middle. They bypass it, and here's what happens. They begin to diminish works so much in the area of salvation that they end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater to say that works aren't significant or important at all. And James says, well, wait a minute. We don't want to go that far. We don't want to say that works are important. And so here's what his approach is. He would no doubt 100% of the time, he was going to agree with Paul. But what we're going to find is he wants to make a distinction about something. Let me, let me kind of put it this way. Let me give you a little bit clearer picture, hopefully. Okay, go back to the day of Pentecost. You remember that? All right, all right. So we see it in the book of Acts, chapter 2, Jesus is resurrected. What happens then? Well, Jesus says, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to stay in the upper room and I'm gonna send a a comforter to you. Well, they go, they wait, comforter comes, Holy Spirit comes, flames flying all over the place. They get out, they begin to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, right? And what is the good news of Jesus Christ? They're preaching to majority Jewish people who believe that you have to work your way to God. Okay, you see this. They think they have to, but in their heart of hearts, they know that they can't work their way to God. And so there's no hope for them, no matter how hard they try. So when they hear the gospel, do you see why it's good news? Hey guys, quit working your way to God. You can't do it. Someone already worked your way for you. So that is good news. Now they've swung to the completely opposite side. So James wholeheartedly agrees with Paul that a person should be saved by grace through faith alone. But now what he's saying is he says, guys, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Works still have a part in the Christian life. It does not bring about salvation but it comes about because of your salvation. You can't be saved by what you're doing in your good works. But if you were truly born again, it will be demonstrated through your good works that you now, now is being produced through you, now in the way that you live. You guys tracking with me on that? You guys with me? So this is where he is. And so what he's saying is, for you and I or anybody else, please let this grip you. If we get up and we swear on our mama's grave, and swear on the fact that our granddaddy and grandpappy was a founder of a particular church, and we have a stained glass window that has our family name on it, and we swear on that, that we are believers in Jesus Christ, and we go out and we live a life completely departed from God and his ways, without loving him, submitting to him, and doing his will. He says, your profession is absolutely worthless, and it does you no good. Hard. Now, what's fortunate is he gives us an example. He's gonna tell us exactly what this looks like to be able to flesh it out a little bit. Look at verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, Now, I want you to look at the words brother and sister. We know that James, whenever he uses these terminologies, what is he doing? He's letting us know that he's referring to believers. These are believers that are coming into an assembly. Do you remember the little story we had a little bit earlier in the chapter about the sin of partiality? Mr. Goldfinger, remember Mr. Schwanky, right? And Mr. Shabby, and they all come into a congregation and they're fellowshipping with each other. We said that's a good thing. That's what's going on here. They're coming in with another group of believers, and some of these believers are incredibly impoverished. They are poor. The word they're lacking uh, is a Greek word which means to leave off or to be deprived. These folks that are coming in, it's not as though they're naked, they have some clothing, but they have a lack of clothing that is substantial to sustain life. They have some food, but they're really living day by day. They may have it today, but the truth is they don't have anything for tomorrow. They're living, here's the point, man, these are poor folk, all right? This is not like we define poor in the United States. Hey, you know, you've got a four-bedroom house with air conditioning. You're below the poverty line. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who literally from day to day are about to die. They come into the church. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because of this reason. It's significant because what what we know is what the word of God teaches us about what we as believers ought to do when we see other believers that are in this particular condition. Even from the very first part of Christianity, there was a huge emphasis on you taking care of your neighbor. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about this? What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is the second greatest commandment? He sums it up how love your neighbor as yourself. The Jewish people understood that to mean the rest of the Jews. In other words, the people that look like you, the people that talk like you, the people who, who live like you and have common interests. Jesus comes and blows up that definition, right? He comes and he tells the parable of what? The good Samaritan, that's right. He comes up and he goes, look, he goes, your neighbor is not the people that look like you and clothe like you and, and, and have the same skin color. They are everybody. They're even included in your enemies, He says, when you see a legitimate problem with them and a legitimate need that is life changing, you as a believer must go if you have the ability to meet that need. You see that? You guys agreed with that? That is what Christians do. But there was a unique responsibility, even with that, amongst the church to take care of each other, to take care of family. See other believers in their needs and coming to be able to meet those needs. Galatians 6.10, Paul wrote this. He says, therefore, we, he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Notice the second part. Especially those who belong to the family of the believers. Did you catch, you catch that? Now, now notice, notice how he's going to do this. They have a responsibility they need to, these people need clothing, they need food. The rest of the they're with other believers who do have these things, but they don't do anything about it. They don't give them clothes. They, they, they don't give them any money. You know what they give them? They give them lip service. Notice what it is that they say. They say, go in peace, be warmed and filled. That's basically what they say to them. What is it? They're giving them just a traditional uh, Jewish greeting. They're, basically, they're saying shalom. In other words, you know, que pasa, how's it going? Have a good day, manana. You know, they're just kind of, sorry, brother, I, I, I don't speak Spanish well, but you, you, you get the idea, right? And so they're just kind of, they're, they're being very pleasant with these poor folks in there. And then they say to them, hey, man, be warmed and be filled. Here's what's going on. And we recognize that you really, you don't have the clothes that you need. And we recognize, and our heart hurts for you in the fact that, that you don't have enough food barely to be able to survive, Man, we wish you guys the best. Good luck with that, right? That's basically what they're saying. And he says this. He goes, here you are with all your compassionate words, and you're speaking compassionate words to these folks. But what value is there in speaking compassionate words if you're not going to show any act of compassion? And you know what we'd all say? That's absurd. It's the most absurd thing that we've ever seen. To have somebody say compassionate things but not actually meet the need, that's completely absurd, James is saying, it's just as absurd. Please hear me, please hear me. It's just as absurd to get up and say, you are a follower of Jesus Christ without following Jesus Christ. It's just as absurd. You know, it's interesting to me, and and, and I don't wanna be rude, I I don't wanna wanna be harsh, I, I I wanna be loving, but I just feel like we need to be shaken up about this. So many people just claiming and holding on to a profession, into a claim, and if somebody says that I'm a Christian, then nobody else can say anything about it no matter how they ultimately live their life. And yet, the Bible consistently stands in front of them and says this is wrong. If there is no change of life, he says, you're not saved. Now, he gives us an example of what that, Empty claim looks like, but in doing so, he also gives us true evidence of what it looks like to be born again. Do you know what it was? Compassion. Being a compassionate person towards those who are in need is a demonstration that God has converted your heart. Meeting the needs of those around you, when you have the ability to be able to meet those needs, the Bible says that's evidence that you're headed in the right direction. That's evidence that God has changed your heart. John was so sincere with this. He said this in 1 John three seventeen. John wrote, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees the brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does, the, how does God's love abide in him? Even John's sitting there going, you can't even sh- if you can't show compassion, take what you have and to be able to give it to the poor who are in need, especially other believers in Jesus Christ, how in the world can you profess that the love of God that was extended for you, that you have inside of you? He goes, it just simply doesn't match up. Why is James so certain that a person must have works in order to demonstrate that they've been truly converted because he understands what God does at the point of conversion. He understands that he does more than just forgive your sins. And if we could just sit back and just revel in that, that would be enough to glorify and worship him, wouldn't it? Just sit back and you mean, you mean every sin, past, present, and future, God, you've just washed away, washed all of them away. You mean there's nothing outside of your grace? Nothing outside of my grace. You mean I can't out-sin your grace? No. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Man, I mean, that's glorious, right? That's incredible. That's that's mind-blowing. But he sits there and he says, but here's the deal. I'm not just washing that away. I'm going to change you, man. And you get to Ezekiel chapter 36, and it shows clearly what he does. He says to his people, he says, I'm about to move, and I'm going to do something not for your sake but for my sake. And what does he do? He says, I'm going to cleanse you with water. I'm going to wash your sin away. Then he says, and I'm going to give you a new heart. God says, this is what I'm going to do when I save you. I'm going to wash away your sin. Notice the next part. Give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new heart in you. No longer will you now your greatest desires be for this things and the sinful world. Now I'm going to give you a heart as a supernatural, miraculous act of God that you will now want what I want and hate what I hate. And so not only that, I'm going to give you a spirit. I'm gonna place a spirit inside of you. Go read it, it's right there. I'm gonna give my spirit inside of you that is now gonna give you the ability and the strength to live out the life that you now want to live by my grace. And then he says, and I will make you walk according to my statutes. Exodus chapter 36. Let me make sure, let's pull back here just for a second. By no stretch of the imagination is he talking about perfection? He's talking about saved by grace through faith alone. If you are saved by God, you know what you're doing? You're probably a mess, just like me. Struggling to be, tr- struggling to live out, struggling to live by faith what God has done. We're working out what God has worked in. You guys with me? Nod your head if you are. And you are gonna fall more times than you can ever count, and God's grace is gonna restore you. But here's what happens again, the trajectory of your life. Who do you love? Which way you're going, hey, man, I'm still struggling over here. I get it. I get it. You, you're, newsflash, you will struggle to the day that you were glorified in, with him in heaven. But you're going to fight. You're going to continue. You're never going to give up. Why? Because of the spirit of God that lives within you. That's it. Now, notice what he does. I love this part. This is my favorite part of this text. There's an objection to what's being preached by James. There's an objection. And the reason I love that is is I, I just got to, this was so encouraging to me. Is it okay if I'm encouraged too by the preaching of God's word? And so this last week I'm sitting there and you know, preaching and being a pastor has changed drastically over the last 10, 15 years. I mean, drastically. It used to be that, that people actually liked pastors. I mean, that it used to be. Uh, and, and, and they actually, for some point, thought that they knew what they were talking about. It's kind of changed now. I mean, I I just got to tell you, it used to be 10 years ago, people would say something like, hey man, we really appreciate you in the the work that you spend in the study in the word of God. Man, thank you, that was a blessing to us. Now, this is what you have now. Hey man, we really appreciate you uh, taking time to study. Not that I agree with everything you say, but we do appreciate it. Okay, so what if I come down, what if you worked at McDonald's and I came down to where you work? All right, And I come down to you, and you sit there, and you serve the burger and go, how do you like the burger? I'm like, well, I like the attempt, good attempt. I don't like it. I don't like what it is that you're serving, but I appreciate you putting in the effort. Would that make you feel very good? <laughs> now, you guys understand this. Listen, if you've been here for any period of time, I am not a pastor that tells you to check your brain at the door. I've always told you, challenge Study the word, be like the Bereans, make sure what's coming out of my mouth, you're searching and you're studying, you're gonna be held accountable to that. Don't walk blindly behind a man or whatever only as he's following Jesus Christ. The only way you know that is through the word of God. That's it, know the word of God. But but, but I gotta tell you, you might disagree with a lot of stuff. I don't even get what that is. We're just trying to preach the word. I don't get it. I do find out that when you preach harder things like this that people have a tendency to disagree with you more. But you cannot afford to disagree what James is saying here. Can't, you can't afford on this one. We'll let something else pass. We can't let this pass. And so what he does is he comes out. Notice what the objector does. And what I love about this is like I feel so good. I feel like, like James is my confidant. Like he said, he, he's not Mike Kwiatkowski in Uly, Florida. He's James, the half-brother of Jesus, the chair of, of the pro council there in Jerusalem. And, and what is he? He's, pa- he's pastor at First Baptist Church, and he still knows that when he gets done preaching that somebody's going to object. I love that. I love that. Go James, right? And so here's what James does. He comes up. The guy says to him, here's the objection. He says, you have faith in and I have works. He says, but someone might say, you have faith, and I have works. What's the objection? The guy's coming in, and this is what he's saying. Dude, you're just being too harsh here, man. It's just too much, man. You've crossed the line. This this whole works thing, look, you gotta understand, you gotta lower the bar a little bit. We're all different people. Look, there are some people that really like to study the word and they're in the word and they're more introverts and they're more by themselves and they don't like to be in the house of God and they don't really fellowship with other believers and they don't really give and they don't really do and they don't do any of these kinds of things. But then there's a whole other kind of, of personality in the church and those are the doers. They like to, they're outward, they like to get out there and talk with people. That's why they share the gospel and they like to give and they like to do and they like to do works and all those kind of things. He goes, but the ones who are doing and the ones who aren't doing, he goes, they're all a part of just one big body, James erupts, he erupts, he goes, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, this is what he says, prove it, he goes, you prove your faith to me without showing it, you know what he's doing, he's telling him to do something you can't possibly do, that's the point. You cannot show you're a Christian without living it out under good works. It's an impossible thing to ultimately do. Now, I think that somebody else might, might else object, and this is what they might say. I think at this point they go, Brother Mike, but I don't have to prove myself to you or anybody else. See, you could almost hear a person say that, right? Why am I trying to prove myself with you? I'm not going to prove myself with you. I know what I know inside my heart. I know who God is. I know the gospel. I know that I'm safe. I don't care what, what anybody else says. Does this sound familiar, by the way? I don't care what anybody else says. And I would sit there and say, you're absolutely right. You don't have to prove yourself to me, but you do have to prove yourself to God. You say, well, wait a minute, prove yourself to God? I think it's pretty biblical. The Bible says in Luke chapter three, verse seventeen. Verse seven. John the Baptist is preaching to the Pharisees, and he says, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. No matter how what you profess, but we have Abraham for a father." doesn't matter. Proclaim whatever it is that you want to do. I'm telling you, if you don't produce fruit, you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I, I get it. Look, this is, this is tree hugging John the Baptist, okay? This is camel wearing, fly eating, locust eating, syrup, you know, guy out in the wilderness. He's a little weird. He's a little rough around the edges. But my baby Jesus, not baby Jesus. Baby Jesus wouldn't say such things. You no, know, what baby Jesus does is as he's traveling to Jerusalem from Bethany, he sees a tree It's a fig tree, and we know in Palestine that the fig trees always bore their fruit before their leaves. So if you ever saw a fig tree that would be bearing leaves, proclaiming, it would be proclaiming that there's fruit on the tree because the fruit always came before the leaves. Jesus sees a tree full of leaves. He sees it, and he goes, there must be fruit. I'm hungry. He goes to inspect. He finds no fruit. He just sees a proclamation, and what does he do? He curses the tree, and the tree dies. dies. And the Bible says that our hearts and what Christ has done in us will be revealed on that day by our what? By our works. Understand something. It's not our works that gain salvation. I wanna say it again. But the work of Jesus Christ in us causes us to produce right fruit, which lets you and I know that we're in the faith. This is huge. It's huge because, especially for the person today that's really trying to figure out and to seek security for their salvation, let me tell you how historically I used to do this, with, with with young people, with youth. They'd go, "Man, brother, I'm really struggling with my salvation." And, and see if this sounds familiar to you. Here's how I'd work it. Well, man, do you remember the day, time, and hour that you accepted Jesus into your heart? Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember the day. Well, what? Tell me a little bit about it. Well, man, I was at youth camp. Oh, okay, good. But you remember praying the prayer? Yes, I prayed the prayer. And do you remember God working inside of your heart? Do you remember feeling fuzzy and warm at that moment? Yes, I felt fuzzy and warm at that moment. And I said, and then you got baptized? Yes, I got baptized. I said, see, the devil's just messing with your head, man. See that, look at all that evidence that you were saved. You walked an aisle, you prayed a prayer, you signed a card, you got baptized, you're good to go, go your way. The problem with all the evidence that I gave him was completely unbiblical evidence. Who cares? There's a bunch of people who have done all those things that will stand before God. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the works of my Father who's in heaven. What I should have done is taken them to First John or the book of James and said, this is what salvation looks like. Take it up. Hold it up. Is this what you're doing? Is this how you're living? Is this this what God has ultimately done inside of your life? You know, I... um, I, I, by permission, my, my family's up in, in Washington D.C. By the way, they're up there helping her sister and watch her kids, doing that kind of thing. We're we're, we're not having marital problems, um, so they're up there and, and they're hanging out, and so I'm down here and uh, very lonely, and um, and so they're up there, and so so let me let me just tell you this. I had to get his permission for this. I asked him. I said, "Son, do you mind if I share your testimony with the church?" And he goes. Ah. He goes Dad, you go ahead. It's all good. You know he's so much more gracious than I am. So much more godly than I am. It's embarrassing, just to be honest with you. And so, uh, so he says. He says, "Sure, go ahead." So my son, and in, in just like everything, you know, we, there, is there anything more than you really want other than just to be with Jesus and to be glor- is to see our kids come to faith in Christ? I mean, really. And so we've been working on it, and by the grace of God, ever since they were little, reading the scriptures, trying to explain the gospel, trying to pour it into them. We're not trying to get them to make an instantaneous decision, you know, or anything like that. What we're trying to do is understand what Christ had done for them and then repent and follow. And so, um, so we were working with the caveman about three years ago. He just turned 11, and, and we were just kind of working with him through this. And he, got, he started getting kind of snippy. Now, I don't know if your kids ever got snippy with you, um, But ours do. And they get snippy. But here's the idea. I kept pulling. Now, my first inclination is to kill someone. Okay, that's the first thing. But then I have to pull back and be restrained by the Holy Spirit because here's what I understand. I don't want to correct for the sake of turning my son or daughters into Pharisees. So that they look good on the outside, but their insides are full of dead men's bones. I want God to convert their heart. And so I kind of pull back a little bit and what we do is we beeline to the gospel and say the reason that you're acting this way demonstrates why you need Jesus so much, son. So we put him to bed, okay, put him to bed. I go get some tea, you know, twice a year, these allergies are just about to kill me and so I go get some tea and I hear just someone bawling, right? I don't know what's going on, I don't know what's happening. I go into my son's room and there he is just hitting the bed, he's laying down, he's hitting the bed and he's, and he's yelling out, it's too much. It's too much. It's too much. It's too much. There's a part of me that's saying, I'm going to whoop this boy for having a tantrum. That's what I'm thinking, right? And I said, what is it that's too much? He goes, it's sin. He goes, it's sin everywhere. Sin everywhere. Too much sin. I'm not embellishing, I'm just telling you what he said. Too much sin. And I said, okay. Now, every bit of me wanted to Get down there and coddle him and hold him and tell him, son, you're not all that bad. But I didn't want to disrupt what the Holy Spirit was doing. I understand to see the height of the mercy and grace of God, he had to feel the depth of his depravity. And so he's sitting there and he's squirming and he begins to yell out. It should have been me. 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 me. Son, what are you talking about? Should have been me on the cross. Should have been me who died. I'm the one that's deserving. So I just let the Holy Spirit work with him for a while. He, gets, he, he It's quiet for a couple of moments. And I said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I said, your mom and, and I have been training you for this very time. What did we tell you to do the day that you became overwhelmed with your own sinfulness? Realize that you can't please God. What do you do? His words, repent and believe, that. Repent and believe. I said, then what are you going to do? And he began to just call out for mercy of grace for God. Wonderful experience. And let me make sure I put a footnote here, an asterisk by this. God doesn't save everybody like that. Sometimes it's a sledgehammer. Sometimes it's just a simple voice and a light breath of the Holy Spirit moving. The person is regenerated. No bells go off. But here's the, difference. here's the thing. The thing that is the same, no matter how they get saved, is both of them from that point on are radically different no matter what they experienced. So I began to disciple my son and begin to get him ready for, for baptism. And I began to take him through these baptism notes and I began to share some stuff. And finally, we got to this one point. And I said, son, do you remember when God saved you? And that's what we do. We don't say when I got saved, but when God saved you. Because it's a supernatural miracle of God, amen? And he goes, yeah. And I said, I said, do you remember when God saved you? He goes, oh, dad, I will never forget that day. He goes, it changed my life. He goes, it just everything about it. I said, it was pr- pretty awesome, wasn't it? He goes, yeah. I go, it was pretty emotional, wasn't it? He goes, yeah. I said, son, let me, let, me, let me just say this to you. I said, that's wonderful, and we can rejoice in that. I said, but I don't want you to place your faith in it. I said, what I want you to do is, uh, if, if you continue to grow, and you grow away from God and not towards him, and you seek not to live for him and love him and submit yourself before him, and follow him until the end and persevere to the end, you can never have confidence within yourself that anything other than emotionalism happened on that night. The way you know you're born again, it's because God created you anew and afresh unto himself. Son, you're gonna fall more times than you know. It's gonna be times that you struggle in your faith. But if you walk away from God, we can we cannot put our faith in an experience that you had way back then. You can never be confident of your salvation in the midst of continuous, unrepentant sin. It's only by your works, those good works that we know. Cool little thing, I forgot to say this in in the first service, but cool little thing ended up happening with him. This last week, we're just kind of looking for these things in our kid's life, and and, and you could tell them in in everything, but let me just share this. My wife, they're they're walking down Washington, D.C., and I'm like, why are you in downtown D.C.? Like the murder capital of the world, right? I mean, why are what what are you doing? You know, down there. And she goes, "Oh, before you get mad, let me just tell you this cool little thing." And I'm like, "Okay, what is it?" And and she goes, she goes, Caden came up to me, and uh, you know, he's 11 now, so he's he's big time. And so um, he goes, he goes, hey, he goes, he goes, you got any food? And she's like, "Yeah, here's a couple packets." He goes, "Here's a packet of wheat thins." He goes, "I'm going to need a couple more packets than that." He goes, "Okay," he gives him a couple packets of wheat thins. They begin to walk. She turns around. He's gone. She's like, Caden. You know, and you know we have five, right? Okay, and so that she's also helping watch another two, kind of with her mom, and uh, and so they're all over the place. And she's like, Caden. and she turns around, and she's ready to, she's put a whooping on, a mama whooping on, right? And there he is, sitting down, kneeling down, feeding some of the homeless people, giving them the, the wheat thins, and just feed them. He comes back. She goes, Where were you? She goes, I just some folks need some food, no big deal. Kind of walk this way. Look. Even with that, I don't know. Can you read his heart? I can't read his heart. But I do know that I place more emphasis on the fact that God has regenerated his heart from that than from experience that he had one night. I cannot place faith in the experience if there is not an overall transformation in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I'm gonna close this up with this. We're treading on really dangerous ground here. Really dangerous ground. And the reason is because every time I preach a message like this, what, what unfortunately happens is people that are demonstrating and loving Jesus and following Jesus and seeking Jesus, for whatever reason, because of their sensitivity to sin and their desire to please God, they begin to deal with their own salvation. I would never want that to happen. But we must chance it. Because I do believe that if you're truly born again, it's all right. God's going to work all that out. The Holy Spirit's going to confirm in you that you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ. But what's so sad is sometimes the people who need to hear it, they just walk out continually deceived and thinking that they're believers in Jesus Christ, when in fact they're not believers in Jesus Christ. But yet they will keep claiming, I know what I did. I know what I prayed. I know what I am. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And James sits there and says, man, it won't profit you anything. It's not going to do you anything. It's not going to do you any good. So what do we do? 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says this. I'm going to ask the band to come at this time. We kind of took some off the beginning to kind of extend this. We're to worship just for a little bit longer than we normally do. Here's why. Because I realize we have to be completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit, but you and I must do what Paul says In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see if whether you are in the faith. He said, what am I supposed to do today? Examine yourself to see if you are in faith. Do you love God? And is that love demonstrated in actions of seeking to submit yourself fully to Christ? Is it demonstrated in your love for other believers? Love for those you don't know. Is that a reality in your life? And there's gonna be times that immediately in your mind, you're gonna sit back and go, man, there's so many times I've failed. Yes, you're human, you're fallen. But God's changed you. What's the overall trajectory of your life right now? Jesus, we come to you, we love you. God, there are some that need to be saved. And here's the time for all of us to examine our hearts. They examine ourselves in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, would you move in a powerful way? God, with those who are just sitting there and they're holding on to a proclamation.